Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Sophia Moskalenko and Clark McCauley, authors of the book Radicalization to Terrorism, What Everyone Needs to Know. Sophia Moskalenko is a research fellow at the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, where she has worked on projects commissioned by the United States Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and Department of State. Her own research on terrorism and radicalization has been presented in scientific conferences, government briefings, radio broadcasts, and international television newscasts. She teaches psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Clark McCauley is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Bryn Mawr College, where he taught until 2016. He has been a lead investigator for the National Consortium for Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. His research interests include group dynamics, stereotyping, discussed and intergroup conflict, especially in relation to genocide and terrorism. He is a member of the editorial boards of Dynamics of Asymmetric Conflict, Terrorism and Political Violence, and Peace and Conflict, the Journal of Peace Psychology. Sophia and Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to work together on the study of terrorism? Well, I'd started working on terrorism proposals for the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation in New York City. Their mission is research on dominance, aggression, and violence. So I was starting on terrorism issues back in the late 80s. And then after 9-11, I got back into it. And Sophia, who had been an undergraduate at Bryn Mawr College, had gone on to University of Pennsylvania for a PhD in psychology. And so we got together uh, to work with START, which is the National Consortium for Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism at the University of Maryland. So we got together to to work on terrorism issues um, supported by START. And how do you two approach radicalization differently from your perspective as psychologists? So as psychologists, we are not burdened by pressure to answer questions of uh, who is more moral than who. Um, So we're not focused on the religious side of it, the ideological side of it. Um, We're also not required as psychologists to focus on a particular kind of terrorist. So that gives us the breadth to explore different kinds of movements from different religious traditions or political traditions from different countries. And our goal is to understand very general human processes that can bring a person completely disinterested in politics to care about it and 
through the process of radicalization to become supportive of violence um, in defense of a cause, in, in advance of a cause, and to maybe even get involved in violence in support of a cause. So as psychologists, we're trying to answer questions that are more universal than just, you know, how did Al-Qaeda come to, come to be or how did ISIS develop? And we hope that the answers we find are going to be applicable to terrorists of centuries ago, as well as to terrorists that are still going to come in years and decades in the future. Um, and we're also looking at processes that affect not just terrorists, but quote unquote normal people like, like you and like us, because radicalization is a process that spans from just thinking that it's okay sometimes to kill people who oppose um, your political view to actually doing it. It's a very broad um, range. This book is part of Oxford's What Everyone Needs to Know series, which serves to provide a kind of a primer on complex issues such as terrorism. Was it a challenge deciding what material to include? We are looking at very general processes, psychological processes. And so, um, you know, we start in the book talking about state terrorism, which doesn't often come up in discussions of terrorism, either among lay people or among professionals like psychologists or um, security officials. But because we want to understand and to help people interested to understand these fundamental human emotions and impetus, you know, to act on them. We went from Stalin's Soviet Union and Mao's China to present day right-wing radicals in the United States. So I would say we didn't have a lot of break. We didn't, we didn't really restrain ourselves too much in terms of selecting <laughs> material. Well, just to amplify that for a moment, just recently I was responding to a paper by some eminent uh, terrorist researchers uh, who were suggesting that there really wasn't much progress in understanding terrorism. And my response to that was, well, Sophia and I had considerable difficulty putting together an overview of what has been learned in recent years about terrorism and radicalization of terrorism. We, we had trouble doing that in a book-length treatment, from which I conclude that we are learning something. And how do you see this book being used by educators or people who might be new to the study of terrorism? I think the book's format, which is question and answer is inviting to people who have just, you know, very specific questions. You can just open the table of contents and flip to a particular chapter or a particular part of the chapter that interests you. And we try to make the writing as accessible as possible. At the same time, we cover some important theories of both psychology and terrorism research in some depth. And so I would like to think that we didn't compromise on, 
on the content when we were aiming for the very general audience. We hope that anybody who has interest in psychology of radicalization, psychology of terrorism, would be able to pick up the book and enjoy it and learn something in the process. I'm kind of hoping that libraries may pick up this book and that uh, it can be in a library, a kind of a reference for anybody who's interested in radicalization and terrorism from wanting to know what to make of the news one morning to wanting to understand something deeper about how normal human beings can come to do terrible things to other human beings and anywhere in between. So that's what I'm hoping. The book talks about what you need to know about radicalization. How do we define radicalization, this topic that we're talking about in this book? Radicalization is a process uh, through which an individual, or it can be a group, or it can be even a whole society, moves toward more acceptance of violence in the name of a cause. So that's our definition of radicalization. But it also includes uh, radicalization of opinion. That is, individuals, small groups, and even whole societies can change their minds about a, about a conflict, about who's right, who's wrong, who deserves being supported, deserves being opposed. And so any change in opinion that makes individual group or society more supportive of one side of an intergroup conflict, that's radicalization. Are there any commonly held beliefs about radicalization, maybe even kind of common sense notions that general public holds that you felt like you had to either Um, weigh in or correct the record on? I think the biggest one is that people tend to think that radicalization is something that happens to them. Some people not like us in some faraway lands who look different, talk different, and with whom we share nothing. And that for that reason, we are kind of immune to radicalization. So we've been trying to dispel that notion uh, with every book (laughs) that we have published um, to suggest that radicalization affects all of us. And if you look at what's happening on the streets of major cities in the United States, you can see radicalization in average Americans, whether they're on the side of the protesters or on the side of police you can probably notice radicalization when you're speaking with your friends on topics that, political topics that um, make their blood boil. So radicalization is among us. That's what we're trying to demonstrate. So you discuss some of the different ways that researchers study radicalization which include asking terrorists themselves about their motives and beliefs. How can we ensure we have credible information when we're studying radicalization? Well, the first thing to realize is that it's, it's not just the terrorists who are radicalized. Usually, the people who are radicalized in action are few. 
very few. But they depend on, psychologically, they depend on uh, a much larger number of people who are radicalized in opinion. So there has to be a considerable number of people uh, who believe that there's uh, a war on Islam in order to make it possible for a very few Muslims to seek uh, the mantle of hero by opposing this war on Islam with a war of their own. And the same on the side of uh, right-wing conflict in the U.S. It requires a considerable number of people radicalized in opinion to believe that the white race is being replaced in America and that this is a horrific threat and loss. It requires a whole lot of people thinking like that uh, in order for a very small number of people to act in what they think is defense of the white race in America. So the, the complexity of it is that there's a, a relationship between mass opinion and the personal opinions of violent actors. Now, it's easy to learn about mass opinion. We have whole big technologies of polling that can help us understand the distribution of, of mass opinions. Uh, when it comes to individual opinions, we are more dependent on uh, the historical story of some individuals. But it turns out that it's not that hard to talk to, to radicals or, or terrorists uh, because they want people to know why they're doing what they're doing. They want to publicize their views and their actions even. And so usually there's no big problem in talking with uh, activists or terrorists or people who are acting in a political cause. Um, now, the question you're raising is, well, how do we know they're telling us the truth? Well, like every kind of human interaction, you can't be 100% sure that somebody's telling the truth. And indeed, there's the difficulty that all of us have looking back on our own behavior and trying to understand why we did something at a particular point in our, in our own history. And it's easy to be revising in retrospect the reasons that you, that you acted. So that's a problem that you run into in talking to any individual about his or her history. But you know, psychology over a period of time has found some ways to ask those kinds of questions that you can check and cross-check and what the answers are, get some sense of whether or not you're getting the story as the interviewee sees it him or herself. So, yes, there's a difficulty there, but it's not an insuperable difficulty. And at the mass level, it's easy.
in the book, you provide a basis of defining what terrorism is, and you indicate that there are differing definitions in criminal codes and even within the research community. Why is it so difficult to come to a consensus on the definition of terrorism, and can there be bias implicit in some definitions? There is a lot of politics uh, in defining terrorism because whether or not someone or some crime is defined as terrorism uh, designates that person or that crime for a particular um, government agency and that government agency has a particular kind of power um, to deal with it. And aside from the politics of it, there is a certain tautology in pretty much all definitions that we review um, where they suggest that terrorism is actions that intend to terrorize, to instill fear. It's not only not very helpful to understand what terrorism is, but it's largely inaccurate because in fact, um, terrorist goal is not to produce fear as much as it is to produce outrage. Um, so the fact that these definitions are so diverse, the fact that they're kind of circular, the fact that they focus on the wrong emotion, so to speak, means that they're not terribly helpful. I can give you a kind of an everyday example. If you wanted to understand uh, why some people give to charity, uh, it wouldn't be very helpful to define your interest as the study of people who give money to others in order to help them. It wouldn't be very useful because people give money to charities for lots of reasons. Some do it because they feel guilty about something. Some do it because they want the status and the recognition of being the kind of person who can give to others. Uh, some people do it for tax deduction. So there's a whole array of reasons that people might give to charity, and you prejudge all of that. If you define the problem as why do some people want to give to charity in order to help others, to put the motive right into the definition. And that's what happens with defining terrorism as trying to terrorize people, trying to instill fear, because terrorists have a whole array of motives. Sometimes they're playing to an audience of their, their own people, and an attack is mostly to do them some public relations good with those they hope to mobilize behind them. Sometimes they do it out of pure emotion with no, no instrumental goal in mind at all. They did it to us, and now we're going to do it to them. So if you prejudge the issue of why terrorists kill people by putting their motive terrorizing right into the definition, you've just thrown away most of your chance for a useful analysis. But that's what a lot of people, and indeed a lot of governments, 
do. When someone radicalizes to become a terrorist, it often starts with a personal grievance. What is an example of a grievance that might lead to radicalization? Well, a personal grievance we distinguish from a group grievance. So a personal grievance uh, might be uh, a Palestinian who's insulted and made to wait in the hot sun at an Israeli checkpoint. And from this conceives uh, a great hostility toward Israelis and the IDF in particular. But that's not the same as a group grievance, which is the perception that people that you care about are being victimized. And you know, or you think you know who the perpetrator is. And this is a political grievance because it doesn't have to have affected you personally. It could be that you're a very well-to-do American uh, who has never had any trouble with the U.S. government. You have no personal grievance against the U.S. government or the IRS. But you think that the government's out of control and that a lot of other people, a lot of other Americans, not you personally, but a lot of other people, Americans, and you care about Americans, are suffering from the overextension and the power of the government, especially the federal government. So that's a, that's a political grievance. And that can move people who have personally suffered not at all. You also speak about how mass publics can be radicalized. Can you talk more about that? So sometimes an entire society or an entire ethnic group or an entire religious group can sway in a more radical direction um, as far as their opinions, of course, but also sometimes in terms of their actions. If, for example, a government is seen as inflicting injustice on that particular group, the response may be among the majority of its members, a more accepting attitude toward attacks on government buildings, representatives of the government. Um, Maybe to some degree, people participate in discussions, expressing these opinions to others, thereby creating a perception of mass radicalization, and that possibly contributes to radicalization among other people growing. Um, And eventually, this mass radicalization has a tendency to correlate with a few individuals going beyond just thinking and talking to actually doing something about this widely shared grievance maybe planning attacks, soliciting donations to support their activity and actually getting involved in carrying out attacks against the entity that is perceived as oppressive, unjust, um, and threatening. So in our first book, we pointed to three uh, mechanisms of mass radicalization. Uh, One, which we've already been talking about, is intergroup conflict and the escalation of intergroup conflict. And so especially something big, strong, 
and horrible happening to us and being done to us by them uh, is a way to ma ma radicalize a whole mass audience, which if you want to think back to how, what that looks like, it looks like the U.S. after the 9-11 attacks. Another kind of a mechanism has to do with the martyrdom, that if you care about a group and a member of that group uh, has been mistreated or even maybe executed by uh, a group that's opposed to you and your group, and that person is seen as innocent. That person who has been victimized is seen as having done nothing wrong and having not even tried to fight back, but has accepted uh, this victimization without attempting retaliation. Uh, that produces uh, a martyrdom. And when enough people agree that this individual is a martyr, uh, that martyrdom can move others, both in opinion and action, to help support the martyr's cause. Sophia, what was our third one? Hate. Well, hate is the tendency for both sides in a conflict to begin to see the other as less than human. Uh, to use animal epithets when describing them, and um, to have this idea that these other people share some bad essence, which means that there is no way to reform them. And the logical consequence of this kind of thought process is that the only way to deal with this group is to eradicate them, like you would pests. Sometimes avoid them as a starter. Mm -hmm. The way the, the Nazis' first idea about how to handle the Jews was to uh, transport them all to Africa. And it was only after the war started they gave up on that, decided on the final solution. But uh, it's, it's, you want to get away from people with a bad essence. And if you can't get away from them and you can't move them away from you, then the only op option is to eliminate them. So the, the trouble with hate is that it, it justifies doing, logically even, psychologically, it justifies doing horrific things to a whole group of people, not on the basis of anything they've done as individuals, but on the basis of their group membership, because they've all got this bad essence. So it's just like the cockroaches in your kitchen. You don't want them. They're disgusting. And you're trying to eradicate not just the ones who have already raided your larder, but the, the old ones who are past raiding your larder and the young ones that haven't even got there yet. They're all suffering from the same ugly, bad essence, they're all disgusting and you want to get rid of all of them. So that's the key psychological power of hate. We know that not everyone who espouses radical ideas goes on to commit acts of violence. 
Is there a way to tell who's more likely to take that next step and become violent? In fact, just to be clear, an overwhelming majority of those who think about committing acts of violence will never do anything about it. Um, it's only a tiny minority. Um, if, if we look at the um, Islamic terrorism, for example, maybe fewer than 1% of U.S. Muslims are implicated in terrorism, whereas in surveys uh, representative of the Muslim population, we find around you know, 12% endorsing the kind of radical idea like uh, it's okay to kill civilians in support of jihad. So ma the majority of those who endorse this kind of idea will never do anything about it. Um, and as far as predicting who would, um, it's, it's really hard. There's no profile of a terrorist. In our first book, um, together called Friction, we laid out 12 different mechanisms that can bring an individual or group or a mass public to terrorism. Um, and those individual mechanisms can be combined in a number of different ways, which is to, to suggest people come to terrorism through vastly different experiences. Um, someone might have suffered a personal attack or had witnessed an attack on their family, and that would be enough for them to want to join a terrorist group or support one. But a lot of people, having lived through the same experiences, would not look to terrorism as the answer to it. And somebody else might come to terrorism just because they have this personality that requires a lot of excitement in their life. They love guns, they want to have high status, and they might see joining a terrorist group as an easy way to achieve the kind of dominance and aggression that they seek just because of what kind of you know, genetic makeup, personality makeup they have. So, um, it's very hard to predict who would become terrorists. And to add the final caveat to that is some people might become terrorists without really thinking deeply or falling in love with the ideas that the terrorist group stands for. They might join the group because somebody they love dearly had joined and they feel um, it's the only way to be near their loved ones. Meanwhile, they don't really know much about the ideology, don't really you know, want to know much about the ideology. So you can see just how difficult it is to, to predict from opinions alone who might act um, in a radical way. Just to add to that one issue that's worth attending to and trying to see who might uh, move to violent action. Um, one thing to pay attention to is means and opportunity. 
I mean, as psychologists, we tend to emphasize motivation. And indeed, that's what we mostly did in the mechanisms we advanced in friction mechanisms of radicalization. Um, but um, more recently, we've come to see the importance of means and opportunity, that it makes a big difference if you can see how you could do something. And a minute ago, you couldn't see how. So we've amplified our perspective some in the direction of recognizing means and opportunity, a more criminology-oriented concern, added that to our previous emphasis on motivation in trying to understand how the individuals and groups uh, move to violent action. Now, Clark, you talked some about intergroup relations earlier, and I know you both have written articles on this topic as well. How how do you look at the phenomenon of so-called lone wolf terrorists and what makes them different, especially in the absence of these intergroup dynamics that you spoke about? Well, that's a very a good question, and we have uh, encountered that and felt compelled to try to say something about it. Usually, when you try to understand why people risk their welfare, their livelihood, and even their lives for a cause, uh, the way we usually understand that, whether it's uh, an army or a terrorist group, uh, is a powerful group dynamics that creates norms that move individuals to, to violence. And the problem with the lone actor or lone wolf terrorist is that the whole point is that they're not part of a, of a group, or at least their action is not supported by a group. A lone actor terrorist is someone who uh, plans and conducts uh, an attack without any help from outside, without the help of an organization without the help of a group. So how are we to understand that? That is a, a challenge. And uh, Sophia and I have tried two different ways of trying to understand how that can happen. Uh, two different profiles that we think can be seen in lone wolf terrorists. Remember, we were saying a minute ago, Sophia was saying a minute ago, and we have said consistently, there is no easy profile, no consistent profile of who becomes a terrorist. Well, that's true for people who join a terrorist group or organization, but now we're talking about a different kind of problem, an individual who moves to action without the support of a group. And we think there may be two profiles that can be seen in lone wolf terrorists. One, we've called disconnected disorder. These are loners who are suffering from their disconnection from others. Uh, they have little or nothing to lose. They feel they've been victimized and uh, or their group has been victimized. And 
because they have some problems, mental disorder problems, and because they're disconnected from others who might moderate their views and their actions, uh, they have relatively little impediment to moving to violence. So that's the disconnected disordered profile. And another one is rarer. Uh, we called it, what did we call it, Sophia? We called it the- Caring compelled. Caring compelled. So there, there are some people, some individuals who care really extra deeply about the suffering of others. And for such people, after a while, it just seems intolerable. The people they care about are being harmed and victimized. And they're not doing anything about it. They feel like they've got to do something about it. the caring, the emotional response they feel to the suffering of those they care about is so great that it impels them to action. Now, these people are uh, much rarer, we think. And you can get a sense of how rare by thinking that this is, after all, a very reverse way of looking at empathy and sympathy. It shows you the dark side of empathy and sympathy that people who have a strong enough version of it can be moved to violent action in a way that wouldn't occur to others. And so that's something we usually think of as a human virtue, sympathy, empathy, and the capacity for these is a particularly human capacity. We are suggesting that for individuals who are really high on this kind of capacity, uh, there is an impetus to uh, direct action and violence for those that they care about. So you cite some examples of anti-radicalization programs in the book, and I wanted to ask, are efforts to stop radicalization effective, and how would you measure the success of that type of programming? We raise some grave doubts about the effectiveness of these programs as they have been instantiated thus far. You know, the British Prevent Program and the Saudis got a de-radicalization program. Scandinavians have versions of these. And uh, the first thing to say is it's very difficult to evaluate these because Success is represented by nothing happening. If you have somebody before you who you think might move to violent action and you put your program into action and the person doesn't do anything, well, that's the best that could be hoped for. But as we already pointed out, most people with extreme opinions never do anything, 99% of them. So it's very hard to take the absence of action for participants in these programs as strong evidence of the effectiveness of these programs. One way that's been tried to do better is to look at those who uh, go on to do something uh, violent or to support violence after having been through one of these programs. Uh, recidivists, you could say. And 
this is very hard to do because governments are not real eager to spend time talking about their failures of their programs. And so, and these are relatively rare individuals and it's just very hard to, to get a general picture of the effectiveness of a program by studying the relatively few uh, recidivists. So it's a problem. Part of the problem we think that makes these programs not so effective is that they are focused on ideology, almost all of them. They want to argue with radical ideas. They want to show people who feel there's a war on Islam that actually there is no war on Islam. They want to try to persuade right-wing Americans who think that the white race is being replaced by minorities, uh, that that's just wrong, that they're crazy, that there's a, we have a nation of immigrants, and so that's just a crazy way to look at the world. Well, the trouble is the role of ideas, the importance of ideas we've been trying to say in some other of our conversation here, the connection between ideas on, and opinions on the one side, action on the other side, is generally very weak, except for special circumstances like a voting booth. So attacking bad action by attacking bad ideas means you're having to work through a very bad correlation, very weak correlation between ideas and action where 99% of the people with the bad ideas are never gonna do anything. So it makes it a very difficult project to try to fight bad actions by fighting bad ideas when the connection between ideas and actions is so weak. So that's, the, that's our diagnosis of the, of the problem of de-radicalization, radicalization prevention programs. Uh, having already admitted that empirically it's very difficult to assess the effectiveness of these programs. But in principle and in psychological terms, we think the big problem is attacking bad ideas in an effort to get at bad actions. If I could just uh, add to that. So to the extent that there are more successful and less successful programs, the ones that are more successful, like, for example, the Danish um, program based out of Aarhus, they do things like they offer people at risk job training. They provide them with housing. They give them um, grants to buy a car. They have um, tutors or mentors for their children if they have children. Um, so one way to think about radicalization is that it's a reaction to perceived widespread injustice, to some deep-seated inequality, and an attempt to correct that um, on the part of the radical. So the programs that are doing things that might make this perception of um, isolation, 
um, segregation, discrimination, less salient for the person seen as vulnerable to radicalization, see better results. Now, when I read about this program and what they do, um, I had the immediate reaction that like it would never work in the United States. The idea of giving somebody who uh, might have radical ideas or might even had engaged in some you know, radical actions, God forbid, the idea of giving them housing and, and, and car and, and job training and help with their family, it just seems completely and utterly wrong. You know, we have quote unquote good people who don't have help like that from the government. So why would we give it to quote unquote bad people? Um, and so when I brought it up to a person who works for the or his program, she looked at me and said, well, we do it for everybody here in Denmark. <laughs> so, um, so in theory, at least, this seems to be the kind of approach that reduces the perceived uh, inequality, reduces possibility of grievances, uh, both individual and group grievances, and it looks like their results are better than, than programs. What can individuals do to be smarter consumers of information, especially with all the time we're spending on the internet, and not be easily swayed by radicalization efforts? In our book, we have a chapter on radicalization in the United States, especially in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election in the United States. Our social media were flooded with all kinds of images and slogans and videos that were um, produced by Russian KGB or FSB, what it's called now, and designed to capitalize on existing social conflicts in the United States. Um, and they were not just doing it here. They were creating separate programming for different European countries. Um, the surprising fact was that Americans were, I don't remember the exact number, but it was over 10 times more likely to engage with this contact, meaning to like it, to retweet it, to share it, than were the Europeans. And the question was, why were they more susceptible to this radicalizing content? The authors of the study suggested that perhaps the Europeans, especially countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, like the Baltic bloc or Ukraine or um, Poland, the Czech Republic, that they've kind of been inoculated against propaganda, speaking very broadly, that they have developed this kind of uh, inherent, inherent cynicism um, and their first reaction to some information is to question it and to maybe dig deeper, whereas Americans may be a little more um, informationally naive, so to speak. They have never been intentionally, if we know, you know, uh, subjected to the kind of propaganda that the Soviet Union engaged uh, against their people. Um, but I think there's, there's more to that. I think that 
Americans are a lot more isolated than our Europeans. They are more likely to live in their own houses versus apartment buildings. They're more likely to drive their own car versus take public transportation. They engage with fewer people on the daily basis than Europeans do. And research shows that Americans are a lot lonelier than Europeans. Um, when you ask them, you know, how lonely you are, a lot more Americans respond very lonely than Europeans. And so in the, in the absence of this flow of information from other people, which comes in, in all shapes and forms, and also, you know, seeking social content, they are a lot more likely to engage with the social media. When you compare the rates of engagement, how much time an average American spends, spends on Twitter and Facebook, um, social media like that, it's a lot more than Europeans. Um, and so the combination of these three factors um, sets us up for a particular kind of vulnerability, um, which is exploited by bad actors. The question of how to fight against it, um, you know, there's a joke, how many psychologists does it take to change a bulb? Just one, but the bulb needs to want to change. So, of course, you know, there's such wealth of information out there. If one only has the desire, it's only a few clicks away to get to the original source. If you watch just one television channel all the time, whether it's Fox News or CNN, it's just one click to go to a different channel. Um, the question is, do you have the desire to go to a different channel? And especially in the past couple of weeks, I see a lot of people not wanting to challenge their own emotional commitment to a particular side of the argument. They reject information that might challenge their formed worldview. They actually avoid data that might make them rethink what they think is, quote unquote, the truth. And so that is the problem. The emotional commitment sometimes stands in the way of getting information. Well, just to add to that for a minute, of course, everybody and always uh, prefer to hear a story that they uh, already agree with, a story that fits the view of the world and the moral world that they already have. I mean, that's background. That's always. That's everywhere. But in recent weeks, as we've seen a growing conflict in the streets of America, this tendency has been multiplied. The escalation of protest and the occasional violence associated with the protest has uh, produced an escalation of commitment uh, on both sides. And it's this escalation that reinforces the everyday average tendency to like better the stuff that fits with what I already think. 
Well, Sophia and Clark, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind sharing what you're working on now? Well, a friend of mine is a photographer. And he takes pictures of uh, marches and demonstrations, of which there's a lot of material to be photographed here lately, of course. And so I'm working with him for a uh, system, uh, a coding system that can translate from the pictures of people in a crowd into uh, some ideas about what the different threads of, uh, of, of opinion are in the crowd. The fact that a whole lot of people show up in one place doesn't mean that they're all agreed uh, about anything, really. And by reading the signs and looking at the way people present themselves in terms of clothing and uh, even action, um, you can begin to get some sense of the different, the competing threads of opinion and action within a single crowd. So uh, I'm, I'm working with Jonathan Hyman to get a system that can translate from, from images to the psychology of groups. And I am gathering information and refining ideas for what I hope will be a book one day about mass identity. Uh, it's this idea that um, you know, we have our own individual identity, who we are, who we're friends with, what we like, but parallel to that, uh, there is a, a mass identity, some larger impersonal collective that we belong to and would sacrifice for if it were threatened or if we were feeling uh, you know, called upon to defend it in some way. And so um, I think in the age of, um, you know, the social media connecting us like never before to individuals we have never seen, will probably never meet, sometimes not even individuals, sometimes these are computer programs. Um, but now is the time to try to understand um, how this mass identity functions, how it sometimes can take over the individual identity, making a person risk their life, sacrifice their life, um, sacrifice their well-being, their, their money, their family's safety in order to boost this mass identity. So um, in this book, we have a chapter on mass identity manipulations uh, that include things like iconic, iconic photos, slogans, um, certain chants or songs that can transform a crowd of strangers into almost like an organism that shares a synchronicity that can be measured um, in physiological processes like um, heart rate and galvanic skin response. So this fascinates me that we have this kind of a hive psychology, this is Jonathan Haidt's um, term, um, where we're able to function not just as individuals, which is what we think of ourselves, but as single cells of a larger organism. 
and participated in a meaningful way um, that can be sometimes detrimental to our own life and well-being. Well, those sound like fascinating projects. And I thank you both for taking the time to come on the show today and talk about your latest book. Thank Thank you. you for having me. Radicalization to Terrorism, What Everyone Needs to Know by Sophia Muskalenko and Clark McCauley is available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.